Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> My God. You got to love this place called Strong Tower Bible Church because there is diversity not only of ethnicity and thought, but also diversity and celebration of different kinds of music. We sang Walter Hawkins doing worship. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me. And then we went way back with a Negro spiritual about take me to the water. And then you just heard Planet Rock from the soul sonic force. Now, I love this church. I love the people in this church. Man, that's beautiful. Amen. Happy Black History Month. We're still celebrating here, as you can see, not only celebrating, but also educating, because there's still so much for all of us to learn, myself included. And Strong Tower, um, I've got to give you your props. Um, you have been a wonderful fellowship during this pandemic. Uh, we all went into this not knowing what we were going into, but because we are children of faith, we walk by faith and not by sight. And God, who was faithful to lead the children of Israel every step of the way, has led us every step of the way during this entire year that we've been away from corporate worship. And just this past week, the elders and I got together and Pastor Jerry as we pray and try to discern what the Lord has for the church uh, we felt that the Lord was saying to us, it's time for us to come back to church, to come back to corporate worship. We never stop being the church. And thank God we never stop doing what the church does by way of touching and reaching and proclaiming his word. But there is an important aspect of church called gathering. And so as we look at uh, the vaccine being sent out and uh, thousands of people are being vaccinated, and as we look at numbers slowly beginning to drop, uh, we feel that it is time for us to have what we call a soft launch or a soft return. And so on March the 14th, the second Sunday in March, we're going to gather again here at Strong Tower Bible Church for those who feel that uh, they're going to be led to come. And those who may say, Pastor, we're not ready yet, that's fine, because we're going to continue to live stream and uh, recognize that our congregation is probably going to look a lot different in the days to come, that we'll be the church gathered as well as the church scattered at home. And so we'll begin, Lord willing, on March the 14th, unless something comes up that we do, do not see nor forecast, because we've had other dates along uh, in the past that we thought we would come back, but then the numbers would spike again. And so because you are flexible and because we want to be safe, uh, we decided, no, we're not going to push it. We're not going to press it. And so we feel uh, that now's the time to try again. So look for uh, an email from me tomorrow that will share some of the details going forward. And uh, we'll begin to let you know because there's going to be a process with how we do this. So, so I'm excited that I'll get to see some of you in the house of the Lord, Lord willing, beginning next month. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn to the book of Exodus chapter 15? That's the book of Exodus chapter 15. Amen. Black is beautiful and black is biblical. And it's my honor to be able to teach the word of God in a way that is culturally sensitive 
and historically accurate concerning the pilgrimage and the plight of African Americans in this country. Um, it's a joy to shepherd you, to pastor you all the way from day one in 1995 when God so chose to plant a multiracial church with a primary black and white binary in the South. And it hasn't been easy, but it surely has been worth it. And if you've spent any amount of time with me and under my teaching, you know that I have spoken about the slave Bible, the slave Bible that was produced somewhere around 1807 as a tool to give to the enslaved Africans who were on plantations in the British West Indies and even here in the United States of America because the slave master felt that it was his God-given responsibility to evangelize and to proselytize the slaves not knowing that the gospel reached Africa long before slave ships and colonizers did and that Africans knew the Lord. We just read a passage from the book of Acts chapter 8, which occurred in the first century. The Ethiopian eunuch came to faith in Jesus Christ and went back home to Ethiopia, which is in Africa, to Candace, his queen. They had a civilized, organized state of government and from there, the church in Africa began to grow. Matter of fact, the oldest church in the world that is still in existence is still there right now in Ethiopia, the Coptic church. And they haven't had any need for outside interference from European Protestants in order to follow God and know God and make him known. So we do not believe the lie that Africans were Christianized when they came to this country. No Africans met Jesus. As a matter of fact, it was an African man who carried the cross of Jesus Christ on his way to Calvary. So that is why we preach the truth of the Bible, because for too long, lies have been told about the Bible. And in terms of the slave Bible, the so-called slave Bible, there were certain excerpts that were taken out of the slave Bible because the slave master wanted the Christian to have just enough of Christianity that he might be or she might be docile and subservient, but not enough of the gospel message that he or she might want to seek their own liberation. You see, the slave Bible is found in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and as I mentioned, it was published in 1807, 90% of the Old Testament was removed in that particular publication. I guess they didn't take too kindly to what Jesus said in the book of Revelation about not adding to or taking away from his word. But they had the audacity to do that because they wanted the minds of the slaves to be controlled in a particular way. You see, 50% of the New Testament was removed from the slave Bible. And guess what verse was also removed from the slave Bible? Galatians 3.28. That is the, the verse that Strong Tower gets our vision from, where Paul said, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. We are one, even though we're not the same. And in Christ, we're able to come together across racial lines, 
cultural and social lines and even gender differences and find ourselves in Christ celebrating our diversity and our uniqueness, all recognizing that we are united and one in Jesus Christ. But guess what? The slave master did not want that verse in the slave Bible. And large portions of the book of Exodus were also removed from the slave Bible because the book of Exodus speaks of the liberation of the Hebrew people. And slave masters saw the association between Hebrew slaves in Egypt and enslaved Africans in America. They saw the association and did not want the slaves to see the plight and the pilgrimage towards freedom that the Hebrew people experienced because they didn't want their slaves to get the same idea. But guess what? For just as the slave master saw the correlation and the association between the Hebrew slaves and the enslaved Africans, the enslaved Africans saw the correlation as well. Even though they tried to hide that truth from the people of God, my ancestors heard the truth, they sang the truth, and they ended up living out that truth to find their freedom. So therefore, today, today, on February 21st, 2021, I'm here to say that a free descendant of enslaved Africans in America will preach to God's people, black, white, brown, Latino, uh, 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 Asian, I get native, I get to preach God's word from Exodus to whoever has ears this morning. And that is a work of God. J just in itself, I am a miracle. I am a possibility. God has done something brand new in this generation that could not be seen in generations past. But as Maya Angelou so famously said, I am the hope and the dream of the slave. And as a result, I have the privilege of preaching from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. The Bible reads, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, his chosen captains also are drowned in the sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. I call your attention to verse 2 for our subject today, where Moses in his song writes, The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation he is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So permit me today with your prayers 
and with the help of the Holy Spirit, to preach and teach a message today entitled, The God of My Fathers. The God of My Fathers. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for legacy. Thank you, God, for what we witnessed today through the baptism. We saw legacy. As Khalil made his faith known, just as his mother and father have made their faith known. That they are not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because it is the power of God unto salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you saved me. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us. And as we worship you today, Lord, we just want to say thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for me. You didn't have to make a way, but you did because you are love. Lord, you'd rather die than live without us. And I'm so glad that you died so that we could live with you forever. Thank you that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Thank you that death has lost its sting and the grave has no victory because our Savior got up. He's alive. And thank you, Jesus, for living in us making us new, touching us and teaching us every day, never leaving us, never forsaking us. Even when we turn away from you, you never turn away from us. Thank you for a love that makes us want to do right. Thank you for a grace that makes us want to live right. Thank you for a mercy that makes us want to talk right. We love you, God. And it's only because you loved us first. Help me preach. Help me teach. Help your people to listen and help all of us to apply what we've heard. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. And thank you, Jesus. The God of my fathers. Moses, on the other side of the Red Sea, after having seen the glorious might and power of God at work that had been building ever since the plagues broke out in Egypt and culminated with this apex of a miracle, to see the Red Sea split, the floor of the seabed made dry, and the children of Israel, some 600,000 of them, could pass from bondage on their way to freedom. And then to see God close the waters on the oppressor, to close the water on the Egyptians so that they could no longer torment the people of God. And as they got to the other side, uh, is anybody trusting God to get to the other side today? I'm telling you that the God who said, get going, is the same God who will keep you till you get there. Uh, He'll hold you. He'll make the wheels of of the chariots of the enemy fall off as the enemy is pursuing you to take you down. God will fight your battle, which is why he told Moses, man, just stand still because there's just some stuff you can't do. You can't part a Red Sea, but he can. You can't make the wheels of the chariots of the enemy fall off, but he can. You can't make the floor bed of the Red Sea dry, but he can. Stand still and let God fight this battle for you. And you may find yourself like Moses and the people that on the other side, praise just naturally erupted from their soul. And in the midst of this song, we're going to see two things today. Moses writes about and the people sing about the faith of their fathers. But then they also talk about the theology 
of their fathers. And just as the slave masters saw the correlation between the Hebrew people and the enslaved African people, I still see that correlation today and I will weave it in to make it practical for us as we stand here on this day. So the first point we're going to look into is the faith of my fathers. And I read it for you in verse 2 of Exodus 15, where it closes out when Moses says, my father's God, my father's God. Now, we know in other places, he talks about the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his ancestral fathers. But here in this passage, he's not talking about those fathers. He's talking about his dad, his father. And we're about to meet Moses' father in the text today. You see, based on 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 3, Moses' father was a man named Amram. Amram. And Amram in the Hebrew language means exalted people. Exalted people. So look at the name that was given to him by his parents, exalted people, as his people found themselves in a denigrated situation. Yet his parents still called Amram up with the name exalted, even though you find yourself in a humbling situation because Amram was born into generational slavery, oppression, and poverty. And by the time Amram was born, Israel had been in bondage to the Egyptians for approximately 400 years. So Amram was born into slavery. He was born into bondage. His parents still gave him the name exalted people because they still had a faith in an exalted God. Amram was of the tribe of Levi, which meant that he was in the priestly line of the people of God. There were 12 tribes. And one tribe, Levi, was called to be the ministers, the priests. From his lineage would come the high priests. And that was the family that Amram was a part of. And according to Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, Amram married a woman by the name of Jochebed. And Jochebed, her name means Jehovah is her glory. Jehovah is her glory. So therefore, her name is probably more properly pronounced Yochabed, Yehokabed, for Yahweh, Yehokabed. And so he marries a woman whose name is Jehovah is her glory. And together, Amram and Jochabed have three children, those being Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. Amram lived to be 137 years old. No doubt he died in slavery, which meant that he died a slave, and he was not able to take part in the exodus that would occur under the leadership of his son, Moses. So this man was born into slavery and no doubt died a slave. But I want you to think about 
the faith that Moses' father and his mother had. Because I'm talking today about the God of our fathers and how it shows up in the faith that they had. Because they had to have faith to put their three-month-old son, their three-month-old baby son, into a small little ark and place that ark into the Nile River. They did this not knowing what would happen to their baby. They did this to protect their son from being killed under the edict in Egypt to kill the baby boys because the Jews were multiplying. They were multiplying, and so the Egyptians feared the Jews because of the favor of God that was on them, which goes back to the Abrahamic covenant that I'm going to multiply you exceedingly like the stars in the heaven and like the sands on the seashore. Well, they believed that, man, and they were multiplying and multiplying, and the Pharaohs said, we must stop this and Kill the boys. The devil is always after people, but he's especially after the men, the boys, to, to tear down the family and tear down society. But Jochebed and Amram said, no, 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 we, we're going to put this baby in an ark. And we're going to surrender this baby to the Lord. Now, a lot of times when we talk about faith, we end up talking about what we're trying to get from God. But how often do we talk about a kind of faith that says what we need to give to God? That's faith. To give something that's precious, prized to God rather than hold on to it. Uh, so, so they exercise faith and thank God he rewarded their faith by giving their son back to him. Oh, you got to read the book of Exodus. I'm telling you, it's better than the movie. You got to read the Bible and see how God, the God of our fathers was at work because the Bible says in Hebrews 11 that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you got a little bit of faith, a mustard seed, God can do something in your life and you can say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Watch God turn it around. They gave the baby up, God gave the baby back. Not only did he give the baby back, but then God says, I'm going to pay Jochebed to nurse her own child. She's going to get paid, even though she's a slave, to nurse her own baby that she just gave up. My God, that's the God of my fathers who will make a way like that and turn your situation around. You see, Moses lived under his father's care and his father's faith. Moses would be educated by the Egyptians, but he would be taught about God from his father. Now, we know he's going to have an encounter with God in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush. And he's going to be 80 years old when that occurs. Uh, but, but that's not the first time he heard about God or, or, or was taught about God. He was taught about God the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, by his father, Amram. Fathers, what are you teaching your children? I hope you're teaching them more than, you know, how to shave and how to be a man, how to drive a car, how to change oil, how to change a tire. All that stuff is great, and it's necessary for us to become men, but I hope we're teaching our sons. I hope we're teaching our daughters what it means to know God 
and walk with God. Because as a slave, Amram didn't have much to leave to his son. But he could leave to his son everything, which was his faith. And Moses was impacted and affected by Amram's faith. You see, as a slave, there's a great possibility that Amram was illiterate, that he could not read, and he could not write. He also didn't have any scriptures to know about God because his son had not yet written the scriptures. Oh, I lost you when I said that. Because Moses is the one that's going to write the Pentateuch or the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's also going to write a psalm or two. So Moses, who went and got that fine Egyptian education, he's going to use that to write the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. But Amram doesn't have those scriptures yet because he can't read and write and his son hasn't written them yet. So how did Amram and the other Hebrew slaves, for that matter, know about God. They knew about God because of oral tradition. They passed it down from generation to generation to generation. The stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. They kept their faith alive. They kept their hope alive through oral tradition. They didn't have the scriptures. Many of them could not read. But how did they know about the God of their fathers? They passed it down for 400 years, passed it down. And one of the best ways they passed down the tradition of the Hebrew people as it pertains to knowing Yahweh, they did it in song. So why do you think when they get to the other side of the Red Sea, they start writing a song? Because that was how they communicated to one another about God. And within my tradition as an African-American, my heritage and my ethnic group, that's how we got to know about God. Because many of us were illiterate. We could not read or write, but that did not stop us from knowing God. And we were passed down the Christian faith on the plantations by singing songs about God and also telling stories about how God delivered the Hebrew people, which gave us hope that he would deliver us. So if Amram, and in Amram, in Amram, we see a man who had great faith. And here's the thing about faith. It's really not faith until you move your feet. Because a lot of people can say they believe, but if they don't do something about what they say they believe, then you can question whether or not they believe it. And so Amram had faith in God, and it showed up in his feet because he chose to practice civil disobedience. Because when the Egyptians were told to throw the children, the male, the boys of the Jews into the Nile River, Amram said, I'm not obeying that law. Because just because something is law, that doesn't mean that it's right. <laughs> because every law is not right or righteous. And there comes a time when your faith will supersede and override unjust laws. We see that happening in the uh, book of Acts when the apostles were told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, well, I'd rather obey God than man. So I'm going to break this law because if I try to keep my mouth shut, it's like fire. 
that's just shut up in my box. I'm going to tell because he told me to go tell. So I'm not going to listen to your law. I'm going to break that law and suffer the consequences thereof. And so there's a time to say, I'm not obeying the law. And Amram said, no, no, y'all are not going to kill my son. I'm going to save my son. Thank God for people in the Underground Railroad who decided, even though there were fugitive slave law acts that spoke of sending slaves back to their masters and those who helped them along the way could come under punishment, there were people Blacks and whites, but especially whites who had homes along the route to freedom, who broke the laws of the land because they chose to obey the law of God over the laws of man. And so Amram, he practiced civil disobedience. Now I'm going to shift here, so stay with me. We hear a lot about Moses, but we don't hear a lot about his father, Amram. Moses said, I want to thank my father's God. So Amram laid a foundation in Moses that all of us could appreciate as he matured. But we hear about Moses, but we don't hear much about Amram. And when we think about our story here in America, we hear an awful lot about Martin Luther King Junior, but we don't hear too much about his father, Martin Luther King Sr., affectionately known as Daddy King. Now, Daddy King was born Michael King, and he named his son Michael King Jr., but after having gone to Germany on a church trip and he learned about the efforts of uh, the great reformer Martin Luther who nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, basically decrying the abuses of the Catholic Church and pointing to the gospel to liberate us as followers of God, Michael King Sr. decided to change his name to Martin Luther King, and he also changed his son's name to Martin Luther King Jr., and I believe that that was just as prophetic as we see the name of Amram being exalted people and the name of Jochebed being Jehovah is her glory because there's something powerful about a name. The name Moses means to draw out because he would draw the people out of Egypt just as he was drawn out of the Nile. And now Martin Luther King Jr. would draw his people out of segregation and into a world of freedom and liberation. We know a lot about Martin, and we should, but I'm here today just to shed a little bit of light on Daddy King because I believe it'll bless you. You see, Martin Luther King said that his father frequently sent him to work in the fields so that he could gain a healthier respect for his forefathers. So he would make his son, who was born in 1929, work in the fields. Daddy King was born in 1899, so therefore it's a strong uh, uh, chance that his father, but especially his grandfather, was a slave because slavery didn't end until 1865. 
And so therefore, he understood the stories that had been passed down to him about his people in this country. And he wanted his young son, who was blessed with brilliance, who graduated from high school at the age of 15 and went on to Morehouse College, that his son was so gifted, but he wanted his son to stay in touch with the rural and historical roots of his people, which involved working in the fields. So I'm sure Martin had to close many a book in order to go and work in the fields so that he could understand and appreciate where his people had come from. Dr. King said that once the car that his father was driving had young King in it, they were pulled over by the police. The police officer approached Daddy King and called him boy. And Daddy King responded to the police officer by saying, here's my son. That's the boy. I'm a man. And unless you address me as a man, you and I have nothing to talk about. And so there are many stories in uh, Daddy King's life that are recorded in his autobiography where he stood up uh, really uh, defiantly, and even in a way that was uh, uh, militant against oppression. And so little boy king is seeing this portrayed in his father. And this would be some of the, the, the ingredients that would produce this kind of strength, yet tenderness in his son as he led the country in nonviolent passive resistance against racism. You see, dads are so important, and Daddy King was there for his son. You see, there's an uncanny correlation between Moses' father, Amram, and MLK's father, Daddy King. I, I, I see many correlations here. Here are a few. Amram, like Daddy King, had three children, one girl and two boys. Amram, like Daddy King, shaped his son's faith before he gained a formal education. Amram, like Daddy King, came from a line of preachers. <laughs> Amram, like Daddy King, had a son who would go to Pharaoh and speak truth to power. Moses walked into Pharaoh's court. Dr. King walked into the White House. Amram, like Daddy King, raised a son who would liberate their people. Amram, like Daddy King, raised a son who would only make it to the mountaintop and not into the promised land. And I don't believe that those are coincidences. I believe that they are, are things that God is showing us that as he was there, for the people of God in the past, he's there for the people of God in the presence, in the present. And Moses would later lean on another father, his father-in-law, Jethro. Uh, go to Exodus chapter 18. You see, as great as Moses was, <laughs> he still needed a father. And God provided that for him. Because Amram, as we said, who probably died before the exodus took place, 
Moses would need another father, so it would be his wife's dad. And as we said last week, his wife was an African woman, an Ethiopian woman, meaning that her father was an African man because they're in the area of Midian. And the Midianites descended from Abraham's third wife named Keturah. We didn't even talk about that last week. But Abraham, who not only uh, married uh, Hagar, he also married another woman by the name of Keturah. She had many sons. One of them was Midian, where the Midianites come from. And the Midianites are located near Egypt. And when you read the Bible, Egypt, Midian, Cush, those terms are used interchangeably to speak of dark-skinned African people. So Jethro was not only a Midianite, but he was a priest of God. So this African man knew God. And, 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 and the Ten Commandments haven't been given yet. But there were still people who knew God without the special revelation of the word of God. And Jethro was one. And he looked one day and he saw all that his son was doing. Uh, look with me in Exodus 18, verse 1. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar. For he said, the, the God of my father was my help. Do, do you see that? The God of my father. Who's that? Amram. Amram, the God of my father, his God was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And so at this point, uh, he's going to give Moses wisdom. Because as Moses tells the story about how God delivered them, Jethro is happy for his son-in-law. And then he sits and he watches Moses stand alone by himself to judge the nation and to deal with their disputes. So if a husband and wife was having a problem, they had to come and talk to Moses. But guess what? With 600,000 men on foot, they probably had 2 million people within that congregation. So can you imagine waiting to talk to Moses, and you and your wife, or you and your husband are having problems, or you're having trouble with your child? I bet you a lot of, that's probably a lot of moving of furniture in the line as people were waiting to get to Moses, man. But can you imagine the line? And so Jethro said, uh, this isn't good. <laughs> this isn't good for you, and this isn't good for the people that you're leading. Uh, you'll wear out, and they will wear out. And Jethro, his father-in-law, says, Moses, now, now listen to what I'm about to say. I'm going to give you some counsel. I want you to find men, leaders, who can be over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Give responsibility to them to help you govern and lead and counsel the people and the difficult cases that they may run up against, then they'll come to you with that. But let them lead, empower them, disciple them to lead so that you can focus on being God's mouthpiece to the people and representing God to the people and the people to God. 
because, man, you've got some big things to do. So let the other guys handle that stuff. And so we see in verse 27 uh, of, of Exodus 18, then Moses left his father, let his father-in-law depart and he went his way to his own land. So he listened to his father. So the faith of the fathers. And I just want to ask you, are you living your life in such a way where your children want to know your God? Fathers, uh, are you living in such a way where your kids want to imitate the God that you have a relationship with? Because Amram made his God big, beautiful, and believable in the sight of his son, Moses. I'm going to say that again. Amram made his God big, beautiful, and believable in the sight of his son, Moses, so that when Moses grew up, he also had a faith in a God who was big, beautiful, and believable. Because in the home, more is caught than taught. You can't fake people out in your home. If you really have a relationship with God, your children will see it. I got to see it in my house. My father, my, my late father, Harold Emmanuel Williamson Sr. made God big, beautiful, and believable. I was telling uh, young brother Khalil that I became a Christian right before I turned 16 years old. So I was still in high school. And it uh, came time for me to go to college. And I was expecting and hoping to get a football scholarship because my family didn't have much money. Um, you know, we, we would check to check, month to month, all that kind of stuff. We were blessed, but we didn't have many resources. And so I was hoping to earn a football scholarship. Well, I happened to get injured on the last game of my high school career, and so that pretty much fizzled out my desire to play football, yet alone offers from schools. And so uh, I had visited a Christian college in Lynchburg, Virginia, a couple of times, and, and I liked it there, but I didn't want to tell my friends because it was in Lynchburg, Virginia. But my father saw what happened to me when I would go visit, that something was changing in me for the good. And so when it was time for me to go to college and I didn't have scholarships, didn't have money, I said, Dad, what should I do? And my father said to me, he said, son, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but you need to go to Liberty University. So I'm like, man, what, what is that? <laughs> so I, I, I said, Dad, they're not offering me a scholarship. We don't have any money. How can I afford to do that? And my father, the faith of my father, he looked at me and he said to me two simple words, trust God. That's it. That brother didn't write a check because he didn't have anything, but he said, trust God. And the rest is history because I stepped out on faith in my father's God. And I saw God provide for me year after year after year after year. And he did it without me having to play football. 
I got scholarship after scholarship because my father's God was big, believable, and beautiful. And I hope your children, they can look at you and not see a perfect man, but a man who trusts in a perfect God and say, man, I want to know God the way my daddy knows God. Mm -mm -mm. You're doing something with that, y'all. You're cooking with grease, as the old folks like to say. Let's go to the second and final point, and that is the theology of my fathers. The theology of my fathers. Now, after being delivered, the Jews worshiped God in a song. We saw that in Exodus chapter 15, where it says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. No one told them to worship. No, their hearts cried out to worship God. This was spontaneous worship. This was spontaneous and unscripted worship, which is usually a characteristic that is prevalent among enslaved, illiterate people, that they worship God spontaneously. So they began to worship, but the guy who has the education, Moses, He writes this song that everyone sings. And in this song, they proclaim the person and the nature of God. In other words, their theology was made known through a song that they sang. Pastor Chris, what do you mean their theology? Because theology is the study of God. And here these newly freed slaves, former slaves, On the way to the promised land, under the leadership of Moses, they sing a song. And in this song, they call the name of the Lord. They use his name. They say the Lord. They talk about him triumphing gloriously. They talk about his strength in verse 2. They talk about his salvation in verse 2. They call him in verse 3 a man of war. This is theology here. They're bringing God down in a way that they can understand him. God is not a quote-unquote man, but to these Hebrews, God was like a man of war because he just fought a battle for them and won. They said in verse 3, the Lord is his name. And then in verses 6 and 7, they talk about the Lord's right hand and how his right hand has power. Uh, In verse 7, they talk about the greatness of God's excellence. And so theology is coming out in their music. (laughs) I love this. Amram's faith and his theology were forged in the crucible of slavery and suffering. The Jews saw God through the eyes of their affliction and oppression. And they felt like he could relate to them. Now, they don't have the wherewithal to know prophetically that God's son, the Messiah, would be oppressed and afflicted himself. But somehow, they touched a chord in God where they knew that God heard their cries. Somehow, they knew that God was a merciful God and not some kind of tyrant and judgmental God. I believe the Holy Spirit taught them who God was. So the Jews saw God through their affliction. And as a result, they saw God in a way that the oppressor never could. 
Oh, I got to say it again. Because of their oppression, they saw God in a way that the oppressor never could. The Jews believed that God was a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. So Psalms would teach them theology about God, that God was a way maker. And you don't know that unless you need a way made. <laughs> a way made out of no way. And they may have remembered a story from oral tradition. Because in Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 13, the Bible says that God said to Abram, no certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. So God told Abram, I'm going to bless you with a multitude of folks. But guess what? There's going to be a season when your people, my people, are going to go into captivity for 400 years. But I'm not going to leave them there. I'm going to bring them out. And when I bring them out, I'm going to bring them out with great possessions. So they may have heard that story passed down uh, from Abram before Moses wrote it down about God delivering them from slavery. And that may have also influenced their song because it surely influenced their theology. You see, the Bible was written by and large by oppressed people for, because the Jews were always oppressed. It was written by oppressed people for oppressed people, encouraging them to look to an oppressed savior who came to deliver us and them from our oppression. This is why, in my humble opinion, the Bible is best read, understood, and interpreted humbly from the bottom up as opposed to interpreting it and reading it from the top down. What did I just say? In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we're encouraged to walk with God humbly. And when you're humble, either by your circumstances or you choose to humble yourself, you can understand God and his word better than if you operate in arrogance and self-reliance. Because it's the proud that God knows from afar off, but he gives grace to the humble. So who understands God better? The humble person who knows God from the bottom up or the proud person who thinks he knows God because he operates from the top down. Which is why, which is why, when we come to God, we always need to humble ourselves. This is why I believe the faith and the theology of the slave has always been better and greater than the religion of the slave master. Mm. There's an advantage, according to James chapter 1, of those who are lowly and humble. There are things that the school can't teach you. 
that divinity school can't teach you, that all your Greek and your Hebrew can't teach you. There are things that only God can teach you. And that mother that would rock on the front porch of her shack of a house with a corn pipe in her mouth, missing a few teeth, just rocking in her rocking chair, maybe had a little bit of tobacco in her cheek. She couldn't read, but she knew something about God. <laughs> and when she started singing, man, it was like heaven came down. So we need to recognize how God works. He's an upside down God. The, the, the last are going to be first. Those who are weak are the ones that he makes strong. And within our tradition as black folks, we don't need to be ashamed of our slave heritage and history and past. Because what it shows us is the resiliency of our people to survive all of these atrocities. Not because they were so strong, but because they trusted in a strong God. And he taught them about himself. You see, when it comes to learning about God, Many of us can't even name five black theologians, uh, but we can name several white theologians. There's nothing wrong with that, but we do need to recognize, man, how come we don't know more from black theologians? Why don't our libraries have books from black theologians and not just white theologians? Well, that's why we need Black History Month so that we can expose you to things you may not have known before. So, so here are a few black theologians. Augustine, the church father, who helped shape the theology of Martin Luther and John Calvin. He was an African man. He was the Bishop of Hippo, which was a city in Africa. So Augustine, who helped shape Protestant theology, was an African but so often, Augustine is repainted to look a whole lot lighter and a whole lot whiter because a black Augustine doesn't fit with the narrative that black people are ignorant and that black people are cursed by God. So we got to make a black man white. Augustine, Tertullian, Origen, three prominent church fathers were African. But I didn't learn that in my school. Listen to this. I, I went to Bible college. I went to seminary and then I went to grad school. And I can't remember in Bible college and in seminary a, 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 a syllabus that had black theologians in it for us to read for the class. So, so I, I wasn't exposed to black theology or black theologians when I went to Bible college and seminary. Uh, let me, let me put it like this. I only had one black teacher in four years of Bible college. One black male teacher, period, in four years. Then when I got to seminary in two years, I had no black professors, no black teachers, no black books. Then when I went to get my doctorate for four years, I had one black male professor. That was it. And one of the books in the curriculum was the one that he wrote. So I'm just here to say that these names I'm about to read, we don't hear them much. How about uh, Sojourner Truth, a powerful woman who escaped from slavery but went around on the abolitionist trail 
preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she would say, ain't I a woman? Ain't I a woman? She believed in the Imago Dei. Oh my, uh, let me move on. There's Benjamin Mays who taught Martin Luther King. That was Howard Thurman who taught Martin Luther King. I learned in the PBS special that came on last week about the black church that whenever Martin Luther King would travel or go into jail, he would have with him the Bible and a copy of Howard Thurman's book, Jesus and the Disinherited. So, so, so this theologian influenced Martin Luther King. But then there was Prathia Hall, a female theologian who influenced Dr. King. So much so that Dr. King said if he was uh, uh, on a program to speak, he would not want to follow Prathia Hall because the sister could go. Matter of fact, in a meeting in 1962, she was on the program to pray. And in the prayer, which was full of rich theology, Prathia Hall kept repeating this phrase about being free and, 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 and uh, uh, the dream, having a dream, having a dream, having a dream. Well, Martin Luther King was there that day, and like a lot of preachers, uh, we steal. Uh, we steal things that we hear. And he talked to her at the end of that and said, do you mind if I use this? When you kept praying about having a dream, you mind if I use that? And that would evolve into, I have a dream. <laughs> My God, thank God. Then there's Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a theologian in her own right. Tom Skinner, James Cone, G.E. Patterson, Dwight Hopkins, Miles Monroe, Carl Ellis, Dwight McKissick, Tony Evans, Walter Strickland, Lisa Sharon Harper, Roger Skeppel, Vashti McKenzie, Esau McCauley, and even my homie over in Philly, Eric Mason. These are just some of the black theologians that exist. We don't know their name. We're not familiar with them, but guess who does know their name? God knows their name. And in the landmark book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone wrote, the more that black people struggled against white supremacy, the more they found in the cross the spiritual power to resist the violence they so often suffered. And so in black liberation thought and black liberation theology, James Cone said in this landmark work that black people don't need to be afraid of the lynching tree because Jesus was not afraid of the cross. And the cross was not the end for Jesus. It was really the beginning leading to his resurrection and ours. So the lynching tree is not the end. It's really the beginning of a new life. So he took the power out of the lynching tree that terrorized black people in the early 20th century because he connected it to the cross of Jesus Christ. So I recommend you pick up that book by James Cone. I also recommend you pick up the book that taught me more about the black presence in the Bible than any other book, and that is Beyond Roots in Search of Blacks in the Bible by Dwight William McKissick. You pick those two books up, you're on your way to learning a whole lot. Well, today we talked about the God of our fathers, namely the God of uh, Moses' father, Amram. Because through the God of the fathers, the Jews learned about faith, and they also picked up some nuances of theology from their fathers. And so I pray that you picked up a few things today, and I hope you're willing 
to expand your understanding of the kingdom of God. Well, as I close, I'm over my time. You know, as we saw today, songs have a way of communicating faith and theology. And over the years, there have been a plethora of songs within the black church experience that would teach us about God and strengthen and bolster our faith. And there are many of them that we could talk about, that the church sang. But I want to tell you one that is somewhat unorthodox and that the church didn't sing, that encouraged faith and theology in God. And it was written and sang by Sam Cooke. And he wrote this song a year before he died. He wrote a song called A Change Is Gonna Come. And he wrote this song after experiencing segregation at a hotel where he made reservations, which they accepted over the phone, but when he got there and they saw he was black, they denied his reservation. And he and his party was upset. But coming from a rich tradition of enslaved Africans who had faith in God, he began to scribe and write a song. And he wrote a song called, A Change Is Gonna Come. And when he sings this song, you can hear the soul coming out of him because he was raised in church. He was part of the gospel soul stirrers. And, and, and you could hear this coming out of this R&B song, his soul. And this song convicts me to this day because when I listen to it, I hear a man who's not only saying from his soul, I know a change is going to come. Even when he talks about I'm going downtown and there's segregation downtown, I know and I believe a change is going to come. And when I look at the division in the land in 2021, I don't always have optimism to believe a change is going to come. I'm tired. But then I put on the songs of my ancestors and I hear them singing about hope in a situation that was far more grave than what I'm going through today. And I'm like, if he can sing about hope in the 60s, I can sing about hope and believe in hope in 2021. My faith was stirred. My theology was quickened. I pray that's your testimony. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for being with your people then and now. Thank you for being the emancipator, the deliverer, the savior, the liberator. A God for the people as well as a God for each person. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.